0: sound design live sound design live is produced independently by me Nathan Lively in Berkeley California Welcome to sound design live today I'm in Portland Oregon speaking with Larry Crane the founder of Tape Op Magazine and owner of Jackpot Recording Studios, among many other things. Larry, thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, no problem.
0: So tape op means a lot to me. Um, In college, when I was studying music and recording, I used to read every issue from cover to cover because I wanted to be the best sound engineer possible. And at the time, and maybe still today, it was the only trade magazine that was putting out personal, critical, fun articles on creative music recording. Mm -hmm. When I decided to start sound design live last year, I described it to people as the tape op style podcast for live audio professionals because I saw the same need in live audio that you had been filling and recording for years
1: had been writing for different magazines and all of them kind of simultaneously went defunct mm-hmm. <laughs> and so including like a local music newspaper and stuff like that so um I wanted to keep writing because I had been writing record reviews and concert reviews and, and and doing interviews and stuff like that but but uh, I wanted to keep doing that and I wanted an outlet for that um, the other thing was um, I was more recently kinda of started recording people in my basement and I was trying to learn I was trying to figure it out so I did go to the library a lot and I would research I read every book I could get my hands on I read all the other magazines um, I spent a lot of time doing research and I would also call my friends that were professional engineers and pick their brains and stuff. And and I felt like, you know, all of a sudden it made sense that these could be the same thing. You know, that the magazine, the writing outlet, could also be the recording outlet. And I didn't think that anyone was approaching it in the way that I was because I, I felt that uh, I would. I had tons of records in my collection at the time. I could not imagine any of them being written about in Mix magazine, hmm. for, for example. You know, that's not to say Mix is good or bad. It's just I couldn't imagine them writing about the, you know, someone recording on gear that was, you know, 15 years old and set up in their basement. You know, they just didn't discuss that at mm-hmm. that point. They actually probably do more now than ever, because that's become the norm. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I saw that I saw it as a chance to. To discuss sort of more how creativity and and the art of of making and recording music could be part of just this, the whole process, is along with the songwriting and the production and things, and and so I I felt that it was a pretty open door that somebody accidentally had been ignoring in the publishing world. Yeah, you know I did never had a dream that it could be this scale that it's at now, and the early issues were xeroxed and hand stapled and. And then I went to a small printing company and did them there, and it was a very, very, you know, low-key operation at that point. So it's, it, it, you know, we were probably doing like maybe twenty-five hundred copies right when John, Pachagalupi, joined me and, and became my partner like three years in, and took it up to twenty-five thousand. <laughs> so you know, um, I never foresaw that it could be where it's at.
0: So but you didn't study the audience. And check for demand. You just printed what you thought you would like to read, and yes. you found out that there were lots of other people all over the world who wanted to read the same thing.
1: I had a rough idea that there would be, because when you don't address a certain niche, and you can put your finger on it yourself, then then you you probably hit on something. You know, you're probably right. You know, there's probably something. If you do it right, you do it consistently, and you do it well, you'll probably get to the people that would be interested in that. Um, I'm, I was coming from a background of being a musician and, and having been in a band for eight years, plus doing home recording as far back as, like, probably 1979, uh, when I was, like, a teenager. So um, I'd kind of... And I studied electronics in high school, and I studied communications in college, and I studied art in college. Um, and... Um, and then I were I was in a band, and I was the one, you know, handling a lot of the kind of co-production side from the band's standpoint, running us through rehearsals, recording rehearsals, working on arrangements, working on how we were going to end and start songs, mm-hmm. and and what the overdubs were going to be, and all that stuff was always in my my department, you know. So um, I didn't realize that I was kind of learning how to produce records, <laughs> and uh, you know, when, when with the magazine, I just really felt like if I did this properly that it would appeal to my peers and when when i would be on tour and and hanging out with friends in in different states and talking after the show we'd all talk about like how are you going to do your next record where are you going to go is there anybody good to work with because a lot of experiences people had going into the studio especially in the 80s were were bad people would say well you're doing everything to a click and turn off your guitar effects we'll add those later and And we're going to gate your drums to tape. And we're going to, you know, like really weird stylistic decisions that uh, recording-wise that maybe should have been discussed with the artist, in my opinion. You know, like we're not making a Phil Collins record. Can we have a different drum sound? You know, (laughs) it's very, you know, it's very true that people, you know, if someone's not communicating at the very start of a recording session, then, then that's where the problems lie and I felt like that was the first thing to just start talking about like how to pick people that would be responsive to your needs you know as an artist so mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of thoughts there and I knew that if people got the gist of that and, and figured out where I was coming from in that way that, that it would be popular at least with artists <laughs> and and the thing too that is really apparent is that with something like Mix Magazine or, or whomever you know EQ and Electronic Musician and almost everybody, uh, is that they ignore... They're, they're much more um, likely to talk about the recording equipment mm-hmm. than the techniques and the choices that lead to using certain pieces of equipment and how you use the equipment and why. Um, there, There's more of a, you know, a list. I, I call them the list, you know, like, well, I put a D12 on the kick and I put a... You know, I mean... I'm not too interested in reading that stuff unless it's something really oddly unique or or a brilliant little idea, you know? Because mm-hmm. you know, if you tell someone... For me reading that when I was recording in my basement, I'd just go, yeah, right, I don't have any of that stuff. I can't afford it. How about telling me where to place the snare drum, not <laughs> telling me what to use? <laughs> yeah, I had
0: the same experience with... Um... Uh, information and publications that you get in live sound. They, there's a lot of lists of equipment and stuff that people are using on tours. Yeah. And unless you're working on the next Madonna tour, you know, those, those lists don't really help you, and I want to yeah. know specifically why did they make those choices. I want a lot more critical information.
1: I mean, it's, it's easy to read that, you know, the, the new big tour has a 500-input Midas automated console. I'm sure they do that's great, you know <laughs> the rest of us are doing what we <laughs> got a Mackie <laughs> yeah. you know, and they got a we got a Mackie that someone poured beer on last week. I mean <laughs> you know I mean I'm a little bit of a socialist at heart, so to me like when you see them people only discussing the upper echelons of a, of a of the business that we're in and then you realize that you there's something really missing, you know. I think one of the things that happens a lot is people forget that live sound is really sound reinforcement, and I think that's something I kept saying even when we were talking the other day, I kept saying sound reinforcement, because that's what I, especially at a small club level, I think of it as, is, is like, you got to listen to what actually is coming off the stage and then add, okay, certainly, like, vocals against electric guitars, drums, and bass need to be brought up into the mix, and then what do you need to add, you know? And a lot of times I feel like people make a lot of really... Uh, big mistakes with just you know like say well in the 80s the kick drum would just come up like this big huge thing through a digital reverb with a bunch of you know 3k added and then you know and the band's like quieter than the kick drum and you're like (laughs) no 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 it's not you're talking about live as well yeah oh live music yeah like like it would sound like a really bad Bauhaus remix or something you know and you're like no 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 it's this is a folky kind of band like turn Mm -hmm. the kick drum down and take the reverb off and so I think that you know, you have to like, it's just like a recording in a respect that you have to look at what the artist is trying to achieve and then compliment it. And I feel like, you know, there's people that, sound people that certainly get into a rut where they just have a, you know, this is what I do. And it's, that's, that's brutal. And it'd be good to talk about that. Yeah. Why, why those guys, they're almost always guys that do that. Why those guys need to get kicked out, you know, and get someone in there that actually listens to music, music and cares.
0: Well, I, I completely understand that, which is another reason why I want Sound Design Live to be good motivation for people working mm. in the industry, because I, I know that I get into patterns and I get stuck. And, you know, when you're um, a contractor and you're just working for the day at different places, you feel less like you're involved in the mm. artistic process and more like you're just another tool, a technician. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes then just it's about getting paid.
1: Oh yeah, well, all these gigs with the minimum (laughs)
0: amount of pain. You know, Uh, I
1: mean, I think it's a there's a there's a a level of thanklessness that's that's brutal. Like when people look at you and they're like, "Where are my fucking monitors, asshole?" You know, and that's all the only feedback you get all day is no one says everything else was fine. You just get that negative feedback, you know, and that's that's not the most fun part of life sound. (laughs) You can probably tell I've done a little bit of life sound too, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, so. I think I think that there there'd be some really good ways to approach discussing those things. You know how to keep it how to keep a positive outlook even when you're like, you know, band six out of eight, you know, or something. Long grueling day. I mean, I noticed that at the festival down here this weekend, I was kind of shocked that every band that played would kind of be going through the same sound check, like the kick drum, and then he's doing the kick drum back to the monitors again. Like the person was wiping the board and rebuilding between every band and I've done festivals and helped them do live sound you just mute the channel run up there put it back on and then open it up the kick drum's probably in the same volume realm that the one right before was in
0: yeah that's and strange I didn't notice they were doing that they
1: kept doing it over and over inside on that stage it's tough
0: when you have an analog board we have yeah. to normal everything you need to keep normaling
1: out. and then and something or bringing uh-huh. everything down and bringing it back up every band I'm like kick drum volume between drum sets is not going to change <laughs> that much you know it's kind of weird. I just thought that was like kind of for something, a festival thing where you're trying to go really fast and the audience is always there waiting. It seemed kind of, kind of naive, you know,
0: when I first started, when artists would first come in, the first thing I would ask them is to tell me about their sound and what they mm-hmm. were looking for and things I should be aware of. And now I skip a lot of that. Cause I'm kind of just taking care of business a lot of times and yeah. doing the job. Um, Do you have some things like that that you do in a studio or maybe that you've done live that you think are really good ways to start off a conversation about live sound when you have an artist coming in?
1: You know, there was a band the other day that I saw, and the the monitors were obviously not working well for them, and they were out of time every once in a while. And I'm like, and you could see them look at each other like, shit, you know? And I'm like, they need more monitors, you know? And I don't know if the sound person was paying attention or had already tried as hard as they could or whatever. It was a really loud band, so... Sometimes you're thwarted by the restrictions of your equipment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, you know, but I, I notice those things and I think, okay, the, you know, if these guys had better setup on stage, they could, they could play better. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, if I was taking them into a studio, they probably wouldn't have that problem if they got to fine tune their headphones and things. Right. You know, they'd be able to get past that part.
0: That would be a good example for something that artists should lead with then when they yeah. come to the stage. One of the first things they should say is, it's really important that we get X, Y, and Z with the monitors correct. Oh, absolutely for the show to go correctly. They should.
1: They should know that. You know, I mean I I think it's really good for artists to understand that the sound person a good sound person is trying to help you. But if you don't communicate to them what you're gonna be needing when you get out there, um, it's gonna make their job a lot harder. I mean, you might have a specific thing, like, Oh, well our our lead vocalist is very, very quiet. You know, that might change your mic choices, you might kind of ask, oh, could you just kind of turn your mic a little this way so it's not pointing right at that one really loud crash, you know? Um, you know, there's just little subtle things you can help the, the sound person with. There's a sort of weird thing that you can take, like a, a typical rock band and kind of think of it as like a little a little kind of spoiled baby <laughs> in a certain <laughs> way. And, and, you know, a lot of times they just kind of assume that things are just going to go their way no matter what and, and aren't proactive. I mean, I've seen bands frequently not... Go up and just meet the sound person. Mm. Hey, I'm Larry. I'm the bass player, and we're gonna, you know, what's your name? Are you doing front of house and monitors? Okay, uh, we just have one lead vocal, two backing vocals, front of stage, left and right, and then uh, drums, bass, guitar. And I would do that for. I did that for eight years. You know.
0: Listen to this and don't know about Tape Tapeop? You can get a free subscription at Tapeop.com, a uh, free print subscription, and I'm excited that you are planning to offer a digital edition soon. Oh, yeah. Can you share the details about that?
1: It's going to be at this point. Initially, it's going to be uh, an Apple-based uh, application for phones and iPads. Currently,
0: at the time of releasing this podcast, version 2.1 of the Tape Tapeop magazine app is available for iPad only and allows you to purchase back issues for a dollar ninety nine each. You can find a link to this app under the show notes for this podcast at sounddesignlive.com. Well, one thing we've never
1: done is is offered all of our content for free online because we knew that that was a dumb thing to do. And um, the other thing is, is to make it really affordable. It just makes it the easiest way to get it just to avoid any kind of piracy mm-hmm. or anything. And I think the app's going to be pretty popular. We're hoping to integrate like forum type features into it and, and uh, different stuff and have a lot of extra content you can grab through it And because we have a lot we do have a lot of extra content on the website and we're thinking of putting up all eventually all of our gear reviews are going to be online all of our book reviews music reviews that'll letters be handy when you're shopping the old letters sections mm-hmm. yeah I mean you can just you know. <laughs> do so, you know when that'll be
0: available?
1: Um, real soon okay. we're just waiting for Apple to approve it
0: I didn't want to spend too much time talking about Elliott Smith, but since you already brought it up...
1: <laughs> I saw your Twitter. You saw tweet. that? Yeah. yeah.
0: So he's one of my favorite artists of all time. And um, I, uh, I remember very vividly the first time my dad played Speed Trials for me. So I think that influenced me a lot and probably influenced a lot of people that yeah. I grew up with. Um, so I don't really have any specific questions about his records. Um, but I just was curious, maybe you had an anecdote about his live shows or uh, some time that you spent with him.
1: Well, I, I've not, I have not done a lot of live sound, and one of the few times I've done live sound was doing live sound for Elliot um, at La Luna in the balcony in 1997, I believe. It might have been before or right after Either Or came out. I feel like it was maybe even like a record release show but I don't know why it would just be in the balcony maybe he wasn't that big then (laughs) I can't remember (laughs) but I just remember bringing like a a cheap DBX compressor over and patching it in and just running vocal and guitar into that and Mm -hmm. just getting a little bit of cushion from that and, and riding the faders and stuff and the funny thing about him is that you know I've had so many people tell me that like oh he sang so quiet and I'm like Actually you're wrong. You know, it's it's got a breathy soft quality, but it wasn't a it wasn't like a, a it wasn't like he wasn't singing, mm-hmm. you know. He was he was there was there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of power and and plenty of volume behind his voice, and it's kind of funny when people say that like they they've heard mm-hmm. it on the records and they think it's quiet.
0: Maybe they're confusing quiet with fragile. Yeah, or just
1: the, you know, intimate, you know.
0: Sound Design Live produces free, independent, personal reports to share techniques, technology, and motivation from audio industry leaders. You can subscribe to the podcast at SoundDesignLive.com, or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. Sound Design Live. I've had this problem recently when I've needed to ask artists to bring down their stage volume. Because what I've noticed myself doing recently is not talking to artists and then I mix the show too loud because I have to bring everything up to the level of the guitar amps and the drums. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any tips for talking to artists and telling them that, you know, explaining how this will all be in everyone's best interest?
1: I don't understand why more sound people don't do things like just use uh, shelf filters and stuff or high pass, low pass, and just take like all, all the lows out of a really loud guitar and then just bring in a little tinge of brightness to give it coloration back. That you're missing, you know, off the stage, but don't bring in all the throaty and all the deep, you know, and then do the same with the bass. Like, what's the bass? What's the frequency missing on the bass? Oh, 500 hertz, uh, or something, or 3k, whatever the kind of style is, and then just like filter everything out, and then bring a little bit of that in mm-hmm. to just to add the articulation to the to the mains, and then you're 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 breaking it down to little frequency bands of of coloration and and assistance and then you got plenty more room for the vocals to power through and that's what I've done when I've done live sound it works fucking great I don't know why other people are trying to kind of I feel like people are making the mistake of trying to make a mix on the mains instead of making a mix in the room and using the mains as a way to fill that in
0: yeah in in most small places you're really just supporting what's going on on stage yeah but I've how many times have you been just blown out of the water by the mains,
1: you know, because they're trying to keep up with the stage. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, 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 that's, you know, that's not necessary. You're not, you're not building the mix up from the kick drum at that point. You're building the mix down from what's happening on the stage and adding, filling in what's missing, you know, a little bit. I mean, sometimes it's just a case of if you keep a bunch of milk crates around and just bring their amp way up off the floor and point it at their freaking head. Mm-hmm. And, and you know it's it's sometimes it's just a matter of time you just don't have time to set up properly but I wish the bands would think about that too like you know there's those amp stands that you can put your amp in and mm-hmm. they they lay back on their back or you know if you don't trust the little weird legs on your fender twin <laughs> um you know there's things like that you can do and and to help yourself out i knew, i used to do shows with this band called thin white rope and this the lead guitarist had a plexiglass thing that he would slip under his amp and it would come up in the front in kind of like a wedge shape that just completely diverted it from going out the front of the stage but blew the sound kind of I mean phase nightmare probably but blew the sound up over the top of the amp so he could walk just over thinking. to it and hear what he was doing and get feedback and do everything there was room to jam a mic in there
0: and he built that?
1: yeah he built it or found it somewhere yeah hmm. kind of like the plexiglass drummer
0: yeah ISOs, Jones- you know.
1: Yeah, those things, same Amp kind of things. shield. Thing. good idea. Oh, man, it, it worked great, because he, he needed to do these crazy kind of like, you know, long feedback kind of things and stuff, so you can't just
0: turn it down sometimes. Yeah.
1: So I think partly it's a matter of how things are placed amp-wise and stuff.
0: I think maybe I've already kind of killed this subject, but I was going to ask you if there are any techniques you use in the studio or gear that you use in the studio that you wish would be adopted in live settings, and you're surprised why they haven't been.
1: Well, the one thing that, that seems really weird to me is the opposite of that is is how much EQ live sound people are ready to apply. Um, As I did a record once with someone who was a live sound person around town, and she had this band, and I started just putting my the, the mics up and swapping them out and getting the sounds I wanted through the mics straight through the preamps, and she just came in and started bellowing out like you know numbers to, to hit you know like you know do a dB and a half at 100 hertz boost. You know all this stuff over and over and over so it's all boost of course too and uh, I, I had to finally stop her and say you know when I'm recording I don't add And I mean I would usually subtract on the tracking end if I'm not hearing if I'm hearing not hearing something then I'm hearing too much of something else so I work on it in that fashion or I'd change out the mics you know and I, I don't really go in and just start going by the, she didn't even know these mics I was using she never wasn't even familiar with them mm-hmm. yet she wanted to add EQ Coloration to these mics and and channels and 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 I just thought, man, that is a really stupid way to work. You know, like it might kind of work at a certain club if you do the certain kind of music all the time. Maybe you always just boost a little high end on the kick or whatever these things are that you want to get. But man, I mean, those, an EQ choice to me is a, is a something you you don't take lightly and you don't do by rote. And and I thought that was a really strange way to work to try to translate to the studio because.
0: Well, I think that would be a good challenge for people, including myself. That um, there's not a lot of time, obviously, when Mm. you're when you are setting up a band and mixing a show. But maybe if you could pick one element that's the most important element or something you know you'll have difficulty with, and try a couple different mics. Sure. I think that would be a great thing for people to try because. I hardly ever do that. I never see people do that because you kind of just go with your best guess yeah. and then make it work. Yeah, I mean, however you can down the line. But if you, if you, if you do have a couple of minutes, that would be a great, a great thing to do.
1: Oh, definitely. I think I think that. I mean, that's something I do massively in the studio, swapping out mics and and making the choices on you know on on acoustic based instruments. Obviously, not in DI stuff, but anything that's coming through the air. I change the mics around a, a bit, and then even get to then I'll change the preamps. You know, I have a huge selection of preamps that I'll pick for certain qualities. You know, I don't see very many people doing that live at all. Like bringing, like, like so, if you got a band and you're trying to get the vocals heard above a loud guitars, like bring in one really good preamp or a or a channel strip. You know, like you brought in a Pendulum Quartet and did your lead vocals on that. And your whole, the rest of your mix was coming through a Mackie or an Allen and Heath, I will guarantee you that that vocal channel will sound better. You know?
0: (laughs) I kind of think that that's something that artists should be more aware of too. They should be aware that most live sound technicians are not, don't wanna take time to see what the best mic they have is for your vocal. So if you take some time to find out a good mic to ask for or to bring in your own, Bring your and own. You're way ahead of the competition
1: already. Well, a lot of my friends uh, that tour quite a bit have their own mics. I mean, number one, like it doesn't that way it won't smell like bad breath and beer. Mm-hmm. You bring your own, you know, and find a mic that you feel brings out the best parts of your voice, the best qualities, and and, and take that on tour. It's gonna definitely be a helpful, you
0: know. I think maybe just a lot of it is probably just a lack of information. Most artists probably don't know that they can make a big change in the quality of their show by having some personalized equipment and personalized techniques. Oh, yeah. If they could just sit down and talk to a sound engineer and get a consultation for a little bit so that they even know the best way to communicate when they come in.
1: What can you imagine if you went on tour and you brought, like, you know, like a $5,000 channel strip for your lead vocal and then just have them all lying out and go, here you go? (laughs) I mean, that's going to be... In some cases, that's going to be worth more than the console that you're singing through. You know, yeah. a band's going through. So I mean, that's that could be. I mean, I remember bringing like Avalon U fives for for shows. You know, for my bass DI, and the difference between that and like a little you know twenty five dollar whirlwind passive box is massive. You uh-huh. know, like all of a sudden you've got like an incredibly well rounded clean signal uh, coming down the line, and and that's you know that's going to help you sound so much better. And I think some some artists get you know, I've met bass players that are like, Yeah, I bring my own DI and you know, radial makes some fantastic stuff for for live use like that, you know, Mm -hmm. really high top quality direct boxes and all kinds of things for doing DI work and different things. I mean, look into those. You have a keyboard player that even if they use an amp, give the stage give the monitor or the front of house. Like a good stereo radial DI output, and you're probably your whole thing's gonna sound better, you know?
0: I saw on YouTube, there's a band recently, the guys got rid of all their equipment and they're mixing everything through Pro Tools and they have their own in your monitors, so they just show up at a place, set up all their own equipment, and then just give a stereo out. to the house and that's pretty extreme but I would do that with my own band because I think I could but um, but then you know there's smaller solutions just like having your own focal mic and a couple of pieces of outboard gear that can immediately make the most important part of your setup sound great
1: I mean, it always becomes a matter of money. That's sometimes why I don't even use brand names. I'll just say three thousand dollars preamp or something because, you know, generally there's no there's no junky sounding ones in mm-hmm. that realm, you know. So
0: either that or I mean, you could just do everything in your computer and have some pedals that trigger it. That's weird. I don't
1: <laughs> I don't trust taking computers on the road for that kind of stuff. I would be so terrified if if my my music was you know being partially done through computers or or uh something i i, I think you, it's some, there's something really good when everything stays pretty much in the analog realm and you can just unpatch something and bypass it and keep going i mean maybe if you brought a whole enough setups to have backups of everything or you have a couple of ipads and a couple of those alesis docs or something i mean there might be a way to do some things but i just really don't trust it and and I really don't like the idea of, of live sound, like from the instrument point of view, going through uh, D to A and A to D stuff before it is on stage or to the PA and stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: I think people's fears about using computers on stage are generally misplaced. I think that comes from some specific areas, Yeah. The first of them being that your computer used for like word processing and email most of the days, and maybe some things crash every once in a while. I think that's what makes people consider it to be not a tool for live sound and live audio, when in reality, it's just as much a tool as any other tool like a mixing board. Sure. And it can crash, and you should have a backup just like you have for your mixing board if you're on tour. And I've seen Mixing boards yeah. go down, and then people have to run to the store and buy a new mixing board if they don't have a backup. I'm, I'm thinking,
1: like, as a bass player, like if I was using it for just the processing and stuff, I think that'd be kind of lame because it'd be it'd be a, a lot of extra stuff just to do something that one stomp box could do or a mm-hmm. rack mount. You know, if I wanted a good compressor, get eleven seventy six, rack it up, take it on the road, and if it's if it eats it, then you just bypass it and keep playing. And if you're really dependent on something in the computer, you're gonna it's just gonna jam you up. Mm-hmm. I guess would be my problem, you know. Um, and I think I know people are putting together rigs and things that work fine, that are doing great. And I was just working with the Cirque du Soleil people, and we were talking about how they're using Ableton Live for the shows and how these things are queued from the by the band leader. And it makes a total sense because otherwise, how the hell are you gonna yeah. pull that together? And that's together? The mission
0: critical stuff. It is. Computer.
1: It's very critical. And then they got several several computers running at the same time. And and they can switch it over really fast and all sorts of mm-hmm. important stuff.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good point, because on your little base rig, you're not going to have you know, complete backup running in real time. Yeah, <laughs> to, like, i got to get an
1: assistant with a, with a kill switch. <laughs> um, I, you know, one of the things I, I've, I've thought about, I think I briefly mentioned to you when we met the other day, was I did front of house last summer at a club, uh, XOYO, in uh, London. And I got roped in. Did I tell you about that? No. Oh, I got roped in to do it in front of house for this band Sea of Bees, uh, who, who John Bachagalupi does tape op with me. He was actually playing in the band at these shows, and he produced uh, her record and stuff. And so he said, "We're playing this club tonight," and we were just we were in London to interview Brian Eno and Trevor Horn, who you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, and stuff and uh, he said would you want to mix front of house and I'm like <laughs> he's like you know the records I'm like yeah yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> you know and so I went I went down and and you know this is a, a different kind of interfacing you know because you mentioned the band's interfacing with the with the person running the PA well this is me stepping in to talk to the person running the PA um, and saying you know I don't really want to take your job away tonight because I'm not skilled enough I'm not going to I don't know how you're setting up the monitors. I don't know what the EQ is on your mains, you know, like, et cetera. It's like, you know, can can we work together? And I just want to, like, do, you know, give me some delays, and I'm going to bring them in on certain parts, and I'm going to ride the vocal level, and uh, and such and such. But I want you to, you know, watch the monitors and, and deal with that end and tell me if I'm doing anything stupid. <laughs> and the guy is pretty cool about it, you okay. know? I mean, he was like, yeah, okay, you know? And I'm like, I really... You know, you really got to help me. I don't, I'm not, I'm more of a studio guy. And I know this music real well. I, I you know, I've been at a bunch of shows.
0: and mm-hmm. That and, was very you know, honest of you. And
1: me. I, I know the artist on stage, you know, yeah. So we uh, we start doing the show. We're doing a sound check. And uh, we're using like a Yamaha, a medium-sized Yamaha digital console. We're doing a sound check. And he's been setting the monitors, you know. And he kind of flipped a different screen. Layers, layers, yeah. So he's in the monitor layer and he's doing stuff, and and then he's in the, and then he turns it into the graphic EQ for the front of house mains. And then he turns it into this or that, you know, monitor graphics, you know, and it's pretty crazy, you know, like the faders all of a sudden become the the band, the bands on the EQ, and then they become the faders for the front of house. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting there trying to get, you know, I'm trying to rough out just how I'm doing the front of house. And, he seemed to be kind of irritated that I was sort of stepping in, whatever. I mean he kind of maybe he felt like I was being a little dilettante with this or something, you know. No,
0: it's just tough to fix other people's when it's tough and to mix they, together. I think it I mean? is.
1: There's a little bit of a balance, but I was like, Look, I'll run the mix. Okay. And you just have to get it started and you have to watch the front of the the you have to help me if there's a monitor issue, you know. So I'm trying to just kind of rough out the front of the house. He's just like mmm and I'm like <laughs> hey, uh, that's her lead vocal. Do you hear any difference? He goes, oh, shit. <laughs> and he gets me back on the right you right. know, screen or, or whatever layer.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And then, you know, OK, they're good. We can hear it. But, you know, and it was mostly OK. It mostly went fine. But during the show, you know, all of a sudden he'd flip to a monitor thing. And all of a sudden, you know, my fader and my fingers moves. And I'm like, what? You know, and he'd... He starts changing something that I'm writing, a vocal, at a critical point in the song, and this is a stupid way to work, you know. If we're going to have two people working a system like this, there should be two controllers, because he should be running his monitors next to me or by the stage, you know,
0: because... Well, maybe (laughs) if he knew you were coming, he could have done that, because, yeah, there's a lot of ways now where you can can have a computer connected at the same time and be doing separate things... I mean, the console is really yeah. just a control I don't he, service for a computer. I don't think
1: he had anything ready to do that with.
0: What are some of the most important choices that you made in your career that led you to finding more clients and more fulfilling, better paying work?
1: I think one of the most important things initially was that I had been a touring musician And I, I like before I moved to Portland, I was living in Northern California, and I'd been through Portland a whole bunch of times and played with a lot of the bands that are still friends of mine. And and so when I moved here, it was like, oh, you're from that band, and you know, and became friends again, and and or stayed friends, I should say. And uh, you know, those led to a lot of my early jobs. I started another couple of bands when I moved to town, and I was playing the same clubs as there's a lot of these people that I started working with, you know, and, and, uh, um, just being, uh, visible and, and out at shows, as soon as the studio went from a basement thing to commercial, I was still playing gigs. So I would, and I would still go down to like the local clubs and hang out all night and watch the bands after i would recorded someone all day. And, you know, they just to build that trust that the mm-hmm. idea that even that you're even out at those shows, you're not just some guy sitting there waiting for people to call you. You're out at the shows. And you go, man, you guys are great. Hey, don't you have a studio? Yeah, yeah, you know,
0: come and on you over. You authentically care about the community.
1: yeah. I like I like <sighs> the music, and I still do. I don't. I feel like you know, I'm 49. So I feel like it's a little. There's times where I'm like, I'm not going out like I did when I was 30. You know, but. But that's okay you know and it's fun to go out like this weekend and go to the pdx pop festival and i went every day wow and, and saw i
0: thought you were just there to entertain your niece
1: no no that was the <laughs> last day of being there i, t- I went home early because she got tired
0: <laughs> <Wow>.
1: not me <laughs> so uh you know i i was down there and saw a whole bunch of bands and talked to a few new people and, and met people and it's great i love that you know because You know, I'll be at Music Fest Northwest running around. I'll probably be recording bands at the Ace Hotel in their their mezzanine like we did that Mm -hmm. last year. And we recorded a bunch of music and gave it away for free. So, you know, uh, just think of fun things to do and and have fun with it. And I think with a recording studio, it's really easy for people to be kind of into the... I think it especially applies to men for some reason, but to be into the... having gear and and junk to mess with... uh, Recording equipment looks appealing for some kind of tweaker's delight, you know And I think sometimes people build that put that stuff together to just to have it or or maybe I the, with the idea of doing their own projects mm. and then oh I could open the doors to other people to help pay for it You know, I think maybe we all start from that That perspective a little bit, but it, you know, it's a it's a goddamn service industry and it's like you got to prove that you're interested in what your, your clients are doing. You know, and I think people are really wary of someone that's just not even visible. I've heard of recording people, people that own studios in town here, that I've been in town here for, for 19 years. I was playing here since 1987. I've never met these people. They own studios in town. They apparently do some recordings, and I've never seen them anywhere, never. And that seems weird to me. Like, that's like, well... I'll bet you're not very busy, <laughs> you know. And it and it, to me, it's like going out, making those connections, becoming friends with people that own record stores, and and people that work the clubs and book the clubs, and the people that work at record distributors and people that work at CD re- replication places. And those are all my friends, you know. Like I'm, and it's not in a cheeseball way. Like I'm seeking them all out. It's just that's who I'm always seeing out. There's people that I see out that I've seen out for the last 25 years, mm-hmm. and we're still excited to go see bands and have a beer and talk shop, and and uh, I think that's the people you're going to trust, you know, as a musician. You're not going to trust someone that came out of the blue and hasn't gotten any credits and hasn't been around. and.
0: You know, it's really good advice and another reason why I've had such a hard time getting things going again when I move to a new city. Sure. Because it takes a while to build up that network again.
1: Absolutely. You know, I get a lot of people calling me when they move here. You know, oh, I used to work at this studio or I was doing live sound or whatever. Like, you know, what do I do? And I'm like, just just be out a lot. (laughs) You know, like like, uh, drop a line to the people whose music you like or you know and, and I've seen it work both ways I've seen it work with musicians where uh, there's a woman that moved to town not that long ago and she just really went out, had, took everyone out for coffee I swear to God and it sounds kind of kind of like it could be disingenuous you know but no she's not that kind of person and some people could figure out that right away she ended up joining a band and going to Europe like within months I swear to God. Mm-hmm. Number one there isn't the talent there already there's a musical talent that's worthwhile and uh that you know people say hey we do need a keyboard player you know and if you're good enough you're good enough you know so but it's like you know that's that's kind of classic networking you know hey aren't you friends with so-and-so I just moved to town yeah I know so-and-so you know that kind of thing spreading the connections along you know Mm -hmm. so I mean there's there's always ways of doing that I think the worst thing that people do is in the studio world the worst thing they do is sit in their place and wait for a phone call Mm -hmm. and the worst thing a live sound person would be doing is is not going out to clubs when they have days off you know i mean just got to get out and meet people and see what's going on and you know drop a line to people have a have a website ready with your credits have cards in your hand you know like there's just a million things that you have to have them all in place and then you have to not be a skis ball, you know? <laughs> you got to be like a, a nice, honest, real person that people go, hey, I heard he's good. Maybe the, maybe we could take this guy to this gig and he'd help us, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like the recording thing where it's like you, you almost have to kind of give it away for free for a little bit or $10 an hour or whatever I was doing, you know, and then, and then finally build up something where people are like, hey, you know, you're worthwhile, you know?
0: Well, where's the best place for people to follow your work online, then?
1: Larry-crane.com. Obviously, jackpotrecording.com has got our studio information and everything. And then tapeop.com is the whole magazine thing. So that's really the majority of uh, websites that (laughs) circulate around my orbit.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks again for your time. Thank you. Sound Design Live. Hey, this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it on iTunes or send it to a friend.